Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Our Sunday school class on Christian rigor. Christian rigor. We're going to dive into our first specific topic this morning on that. Uh, we've had two sort of intro classes, and this, this Sunday we're going to dive into a specific, uh, specific area in our Christian life where we need to consider what it means to have rigor. So let's pray, and we'll dive into the Scriptures. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy. <clears throat> we thank you that in Jesus, by faith, our sins have been removed from us as far as east is from west. We thank you that we can now approach you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Father, having that righteousness and being uh, loosed from our bondage to sin, we can walk in newness of life. We can <clears throat> pursue our sanctification. And Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would stir us up to do that work and that we would uh, not be undisciplined, but that we would practice discipline and lay hold of all those means you have uh, given to us for growing in you and becoming more like your son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would guide this class by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we are going to talk about money. Just exactly what everybody wants to talk about this morning. Corey will be handing out your giving statements from last year today, so I figure it's a good, as good time as any to talk about money. But um, <clears throat> this is an area of our lives that we all deal with. It is an area of our lives that Scripture speaks very clearly uh, to and about. There are quite a, quite a number of warnings about wealth and money in Scripture, and so we need to uh, do some self-examination when it comes to money. Now, remember, we're taking as our point of departure 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11, that we are to, to, as it says, in our faith, supply moral excellence, moral excellence, knowledge, and knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And then Peter says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. And then what does it say next? Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So it's like the one who doesn't pursue holiness and sanctification forgets about his justification, right? Being purified from your sins, being declared righteous. Right? And so, um, again, 
I'm, I'm reading through Luther's Galatians commentary, and that's 500 pages on the doctrine of justification, right? And he keeps saying, you're not justified by your works. You're not justified by your works. You're justified by faith. He just keeps coming back to that and back to that and back to that. And that indeed is Scripture, right? We're not justified by our works, but we are justified by faith, and that justification, that freedom, that, that change of status away from the bondage of sin then allows us then to um, produce good works, right? So from faith flows good works. We don't want to front load it with and say justific- we're justified by good works, right? And then, and then our, our faith is only active after that point. Okay, so that's a fundamental we have to to have in place. If you, um, if you are not justified in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will pursue good works as your justification. So you have to have, it, you have, to have had the Holy Spirit work in you, testifying to you that you are a child of God, right? You have to have been broken down by the law of God, and you say, I can't do this. Save me, Lord Jesus, and then had that, ju- that piece of justification come into your heart and out of which flows this pursuit of righteousness, okay? Obedience arises from a heart into which the love of God has been poured and is active. And so, <clears throat> here's my general approach as we go into specific areas where we need to pursue rigor in the Christian life. I want to go to certain scriptures and simply ask this question of each scripture. If I treated this as absolutely true, would I be willing to obey it? Now, we're committed to the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture and the inerrancy of scripture and the authority of scripture. We're committed to them theoretically, right, as as doctrines in a book. Yeah, we hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. We hold to its inspiration. We hold that it is absolutely authoritative. But we still have to approach Scripture and say, okay, that is absolute truth. Am I willing to obey it? The answer should always be yes, of course, but the the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Um, I I would tell a story about Sarah and and feminism and male headship when she came to terms with that. That's how she approached the scripture. Having been raised in an evangelical feminist home, she was like, wait, if scripture means what it seems to mean on face value, would I even be willing to obey it? Like, could I marry a man and allow him to be my head? as Ephesians 5, as Colossians, as other places uh, lay out. And uh, I'm not sure her answer was immediately yes. (laughs) It was definitely no. It was definitely no, which, okay, that's a, a shocking sort of response to the absolutely inerrant, authoritative truth of God but all too familiar in our own hearts, correct? Okay, so let's talk about money. Work provides us with wealth, and that is necessary. 
Um, I am not going to advocate for vows of poverty, right? That would be wickedness, and that would be to uh, not feel any weight in the command that's given to, um, to men to, um, to provide for their families, and if they don't, they're worse than unbelievers, right? We work as unto the Lord in whatever vocation God gives to us. Right? And so we work, and that work is good. Work is something we would have done if, if Adam had never sinned. Right? It's, a, it's a pre-fall condition. Um, it is some, he would have cultivated and kept that garden. He would have produced incredible fruits and, and incredible wealth. Okay? And so we, we work uh, as well, and it's good. Uh, vows of poverty are wrong-headed. Yet, the product of our work is money, okay? It's wealth, it's money. And we receive all kinds of warnings about money and the love of money in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20 says, Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat and to drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, God has also empowered him to eat from them, and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Right? So there's like, you know, there's a positive approach. There's work, there's uh, fruit from that work, and God is the one who gives us the ability to enjoy that reward, and we would hope keep it in the right place in our hearts and in our lives. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, his own household, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If anyone does not provide, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, Right? So there's a weight in that verse. I remember a, a man that I used to um, meet with weekly who was not providing for his family and was doing things that were destructive to his own home. And he, you know, at lunch one day was like, so does it really mean that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever? And I was like, well, that's what it says, right? And I know it's often the job of pastors to make, uh, to protect people from the Word of God by telling them exactly the opposite of what's on the page, which I don't ever want to do. But no, I was like, no, that's what it means. You're worse than an infidel. You, you, are, you have... You have denied the faith. This is such a fundamental part of you providing for your wife and your children that if, if you deny it, if you don't do it, if you refuse to work, 
well then you have um, put yourself in that status. <clears throat> uh, Luke ten seven says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Again, work should receive payment. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Um, this, you know, in, in, in talking about the dangers of, of wealth, the dangers of money, uh, that isn't to say that you shouldn't try to negotiate a contract to receive the money that you are worthy of, right? If the, if the work is being done, uh, then you are worthy of your wages. So there's that. Uh, no vows of poverty, nothing like that. That would be um, foolishness. All that you do, do as unto the Lord and receive that which... Um, you've worked for. Nevertheless, money competes for our, what? Money competes for our, yeah. It is the great idol. Money competes for our love. Our love. And it can usurp our love for God. Money. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. By longing for it, right? We're supposed to long for God. That's why I say it, 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 money, money or any idol, we could say, but money in particular aims for our hearts. It tries to take away our love, right? It, it becomes the object of our love. And some who long for it have wandered even away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vapor, he says, vanity, vapor. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. Money, money's power is, is that it gives the impression of permanence and security, which is exactly what everybody is looking for, but can only be found in the one who is permanent and always there and who does not change, and that is God himself. Right? But money gives this illusion that with the accumulation of it, there is protection and permanence, a good future, all the things that we are promised in God, we place in the accumulation of wealth, personally. Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and 
love the other, there's that love, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth, and the word there is mammon, NASB has cleaned it up for us, um, mammon, that's like wealth, wealth personified as an object of worship, wealth as an idol, okay? You cannot serve God in wealth because what will end up happening is you'll love one and hate the other. And that's why I say love comp- or wealth, money competes for our love, the affection of our heart. That's what happens. Matthew 19, 16 to 26. And someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Okay, and that's just like this weight lands on his shoulders. And yet he says, well... You know, um, then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Right? God, God tells, Jesus tells that man, that man specifically, right? He knew that man had great wealth in property. And for that man specifically, the command was go and sell and come and follow me. In other words, stop following your wealth, start following me. And that, that was the command for that specific man. And what did he do? Which love won out? His love for wealth won out over his love for following Jesus and his love for the Son of God. Matthew 19. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, right, they were astonished. And said, then who can be saved? I mean, why would they say that? Were they wealthy men? I mean, they weren't poor. They had jobs. They were fishermen. You know. They had some source of income. Um, the tax collector, Matthew, Right? Was it Matthew that was the tax collector? He might have had considerable wealth, gotten illicitly. 
then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Takes the action of God to break the affection some have for money and place that, that whole heart upon him. Okay? But he says it's hard. It's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. If there's any verse in the American church context that has no authority, it's that one. We just don't believe it. Right? We start flipping back through all the pages of Scripture and we say, well, Abraham was wealthy. Well, da-da-da was wealthy. Well, you know, we just go through the long King David, Solomon... They were all wealthy. And the only, the only reason those men did not end their lives loving God is because God broke their love for money by His Holy Spirit working in them. Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven For neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart, the affections. That's why money is competing, not just for your attention, but actually much deeper than that, your, your love. Do you love money? Do you get a skip in your step when unexpected money comes into your bank account? More so than God answering your prayer that you've been praying for the last three years. But you don't even realize he's, he's answered, you know. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20. Be aware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied, and have built good houses, and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents, and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. It is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. 
So you see that? I mean, this is, this is Moses in Deuteronomy. The people are about to enter the promised land, and he's warning them that you're going to go in here, and you're going to have all kinds of new wealth. That is the glory of the promised land, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to go in. There's not gonna, they're not going to have to eat any more manna. Everything's going to be provided for them. You know, the, you remember the, the grapes, just the massive grapes and all the good things that are coming. They're going to occupy houses that they didn't even build with their own hands. All of this is going to come to them. And the, the tendency of the heart right at that point is to say, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Look at me. Look at my vast kingdom. Right? Look at what I've built for myself. And forget that it is... God, who gave them the strength in order to produce that wealth. And, and so you see, it comes down, money is often, um, money vies for our affections. It vies for our love. Will we be lovers of money or will we be lovers of God? And there is often a competition between those two things, right? There, there is in my heart, right? There is in your heart, right? Would you rather have the ear of the Almighty God or would you rather have the comfort of a good retirement? And some days it's a hard, you know, some days we actually do a cost-benefit analysis on those two things. And it's pathetic. It's weakness. Hebrews 13. Maybe this verse we should go to last, but it, it's, it's the linchpin on this, this, what I'm saying about love. That money vies for your love. Hebrews 13, 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we, make, we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Do you see, it's all sort of compacted right into that verse. It's right there. Be sure that your character is free from the love of money, because God's never going to leave you, is what it says. Right? You have a vast resource. You have an undeniably powerful resource if we want to speak so crassly of God. Right? In Him and His presence. And yet, the love of money comes along and just forces that out of our hearts and out of our minds. And so money... money is is tempting this way. <coughs> Excuse me. Tempt from here out. So what to do? What to do? Uh, I don't have, I, I have one thing. I have one, one thing that will help you in this. And that is to bring in the whole tithe. I don't often 
speak on tithing, but that is the solution here, to break your affection toward money and to test your affection toward money, right? This is a good test. In fact, God lays it out as a test. Did you know that? Now, this is the verse where I'm like, okay, if this is true, are we willing to obey it, okay? And so, I want to go to, you know where I'm going to go. Where am I going to go? What's that? Malachi 3, 8 through 12. This is the verse, all right? These are the verses. This is true. Am I willing to obey? And bam, it starts with a punch in the eye. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed God? How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if these verses are true, If these, I mean, it is Old Testament. And so, these are for us, right? All Scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, training, correction. If these verses are true, what does it mean? It means that a failure to tithe is not just failing to support your church and your pastor and your ministries, but it is stealing from God Himself. That's what I want to say. It's stealing from God Himself. This begs the question, does the tithe continue in the New Covenant era? Is there anything to overturn it? Is there anything in the New New Testament to overturn the the idea of the tithe? Right, 10%. 10% of wealth being given to the temple. Even the Levites, right, who didn't have a land inheritance were called to give a 10% of the 10% that they were given out of the wealth of the tribes, right? So even the pastors and, and elders and teachers were, were, um, were called to tithe as well. Is, is the church ne- as necessary today as the temple was in the Old Covenant? Do we read of the giving of the early church in Scripture? Did the early church give? Did they give generously? If anything, again, it's an argument from silence. There's no mention of the tithe in the New Testament. It's sort of assumed. But what is there in the New Testament is all kinds of provocations toward generosity. And so it seems as if the New Testament is saying, 
you need to go beyond the tithe. You need to be generous with your wealth. You need to protect yourself from the love of money. And so, so go crazy. Be generous. Hold it loosely. Right? Um, woe, uh, Matthew 23, 23 to 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Do you see what he's saying there? He's like, yeah, tithe the mint, the dill, the cumin, but, you know, you, you might want to take care of your parents in their old age, too. Um, and so, they're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Luke 21, 1 through 4, and he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, and he said, truly, true, truly, I say to you, this poor woman did what? Put in more than all of them. Put in more than all of them, for they out of their surplus put something into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had. Now she had, where, where were her affections, right? Where was her heart? She was like, this is going to be a fun experiment. I'm going to see if I get to eat tomorrow. I can't buy bread. God's got to provide it. And you can imagine her pleading in her prayers, God, I put in all that I had, provide for me. And someone came along and provided for her, and then she could say, you know what, God did this. So it wasn't by my wealth that I'm eating today, it's, by, it's purely by the grace of God in bringing me that. Acts 20, 35, and everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 1 Corinthians 16, 2-4, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And so here's the Apostle Paul directing the church, when you get together on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day, you know, as the Lord prospers, you give, and then I'll take that gift, and we'll take it to whom? To Jerusalem and the poor. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right? Why does Scripture say that God loves a cheerful giver? Because the cheerful giver has his love in the right place. His love is not for money. His love is for the Lord. The Lord has told him to, be, to give. And now he's giving, and that pleases the Lord, and he'd rather please the Lord than serve his money, right? And so, <clears throat> and so stop and think about that. Um, 
not grudgingly or under compulsion. Give, but not grudgingly or under compulsion. How many times have I said we can't afford to tithe? I can't afford to tithe. I can't afford to give up 10% at least of what God has provided for me. I just can't afford to do that. And God would not have me be so imprudent. I have credit card bills and I'm going to tithe and not pay off the credit card bills? God hates imprudence, right? And we start thinking that, well, God's going to be honored more in this and me paying off the debt and me living beyond my means and paying off those debt than being faithful to give what he requires to him and the service of his church. The antidote to the sway of money is to hold your money loosely and be faithful to give it away. If there is a competition between your affection for God and your affection for money, what ought you to do? You ought to part with your money. I.e., God's money. voluntarily and with a cheerful heart. How much? At least a tithe of your gross income. Pre-tax. That's another way we get around it, don't we? We don't bring in the whole tithe. We're like, okay, after taxes come out and after the insurance and after all of these things come out, then maybe we'll do 10% of that, but that's hard to afford that. And so, to whom should it go? My practice has been to give my tithe to the church and free will offerings beyond the tithe to other ministries and missionaries that I support. That's been my practice. Okay? I think that's we could, we could loosely base that upon the picture that we see of the, of the early church bringing money to the apostles, of the, of the, the temple set up as well. But I'll just leave it at this. My practice has been 10% and then free will offerings beyond that. Um, But again, I can't afford it. So rather than change how you use God's money so that you can obey Him, you'll continue to rob Him and declare to Him that you haven't been given enough. If God loves a cheerful giver who gives not under compulsion, what does it say about you that if you do give, you give begrudgingly? You give thinking, man, if I didn't tithe, we could have that eight-seat Tahoe. Right? This doesn't go through your heads when you write your check. You're more sanctified than me. Praise God. That's what I want. What does it say about your love? What does it say about where your affection is? What does it say about what you put your trust in? What does it say about you that you have this relationship with the wealth, 100% of which God has, God owns, and and gives to you to steward? Right? 100% of it is God's. He gave you all the strength that you have to 
increase that wealth. And he calls for you to be faithful by giving 10%. And scripture says that if you don't do that, you're robbing God. Calvin on bringing the whole tithe. We hence learn that they had not withholden the whole of the tenths from the priests, but that they fraudulently brought the half, or retained as much as they could. For it was not without reason that he said, bring all or the whole. They then so paid the tenths as to supply the priests with a part only, and thus they trifled with God according to what hypocrites do whenever they claim to themselves high honor and try to perform their duty in such a way as not to discover their own untrustworthiness. And yet they are not ashamed of the liberty they take to trick God. And of this we here have a remarkable example. We then see that it is no new or unusual thing for men to pretend to do the duties they owe to God. And at the same time to take away from him what is his own and to transfer it to themselves and that manifestly so that their impiety is evident, though it is covered by the veil of dissimulation, of concealment, right? No one knows whether I'm tithing or not, right? People see me put my hand in the basket with a check, but they have no clue how much is in that check. But boy, we hope they're thinking that it's the whole tithe because we want the credit, All right, three minutes. <clears throat> Final consideration. Consider the example of and consider the example of Ananias and Sapphira. They told the apostles, this is what happened there. They told the apostles that they had a piece of land and that they intended to sell the piece of land and, and give the proceeds to the apostles. Right? They did not. They held back some of that for themselves. Um, is there any application here? Is there any application? Does that teach us anything about money or love of money or the intent of their hearts and, and how, how we often approach that wealth as as, and, and they didn't have to make that promise, right? I, didn't, I don't think they had to make that promise. There was no reason they had to do that. They just made the promise, right? And so if you've made a promise, fulfill that promise, right, to the Lord. Fulfill that promise to the Lord. Do you say you tithe? Or do you let people think that you tithe? Um and yet you don't bring the tithe. You don't bring in the tithe. Well, here's what you have to consider. To whom are you lying? You may be lying to your brothers and sisters, but ultimately what you're doing is lying to God. Right? That is what that Malachi passage said. And so let me go back to that. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. God says, test me. 
bring in the whole tithe, and what's going to happen? You might find that you're content with the 90% that he allows you to use on your own bodies. You might find that that 90% is crazy in its ability to, like, meet all of your needs. You might find that that 90% even increases and increases and increases and increases, right? To the point where you can give more than a tithe, right? You can increase your generosity to God because God loves a cheerful giver. And, uh, but all of this, all of this just to say that if that Malachi is true, that blessings come by this sacrifice, and if it is true that the love of money com- competes with our love for God, well then, then use this means, this means of giving in order to wean yourself of the love of money in order to test and see that God will provide, right? And, and, uh, and follow it. it. It is one of the easier commands on the page to follow. It's one of the more difficult things to follow because we immediately feel its pain. Wait, we, we immediately feel its difficulty. And I'm saying this to a generous church. We have met budget for I don't know how many years. It's glorious. It's wonderful. Okay? But I don't want there to be anybody in here who's robbing God. Because that's a terrible thing. That's a terrible thing. And I have to consider myself and whether I'm robbing from God. And I live off of the tithes and offerings of the people. So it's very important that I consider the tithe of the tithe, like the Levitical priests had to do. It's very important for me. There's maybe more responsibility because my wealth comes directly from tithes and offerings. And that's God's, God's people being generous and fearing Him. So that's it. That's our first point. Um, examine yourself. Look into your um, books. Remember that all that you own is God's and He requires of you a tithe to go to his church and to ministries and um, and so obey in this and get to work on the things your heart goes after. You'll see fruit from it. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for reminding us by the inspired word of the joy that we can have in you as we break our affections with money. Lord, help us to do this. We are so prone toward idolatry. We're so prone to um, trust in only the things that we can see and handle. Uh, but Lord, we want, we want to, to put our full trust and you, the one who has ordered all things from the beginning to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.